I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, are you smarter than a computer? Will you always be? By the fall of 2012, Jeff Hinton literally had not sat down for seven years. He liked to say that he last sat down in 2005, and it was a mistake. That's Cade Metz, a technology reporter for The New York Times. And the guy he's talking about, Jeff Hinton, he's the most important computer scientist you've never heard of. He had first injured his back as a teenager while growing up in Britain. He was lifting a space heater for his mother, and he slipped a disc. You know how in Jenga, one wrong move sends the whole tower tumbling down? That's kind of what Jeff's spine is like. Even the simple act of sitting can knock that disc loose and put him in so much pain, he's got to lay in bed for weeks. So at some point, he decided the best thing to do was to simply stop sitting down altogether. And what that meant was is that he couldn't drive a car, he couldn't fly with the commercial airlines because they made him sit during takeoff and landing. Whenever Jeff has to travel, he has no choice but to take the scenic route. Like in 2012, when he decides to attend a computer science conference in Lake Tahoe, 2,000 miles away from his home in Toronto. It means a 13-hour bus ride, which he spends sprawled on the backseat followed by three days chugging across North America by train. Seems like a hell of a lot of effort just to hear a bunch of academics read their latest papers, right? But Jeff doesn't care so much about the conference itself. He's there because he knows that representatives from the biggest tech companies in the world are gonna be there too. And that makes it the perfect place for Jeff Hinton to auction himself off. He and two of his students have published this research paper where they've shown that they can build a technology that can recognize objects in images, which until then was an incredibly difficult thing to do. And they've done it with an accuracy that no one expected. The technology they built is called a neural network. Just the fact that it can recognize objects with any accuracy at all is pretty cool. But what makes it truly revolutionary is that it learns and improves as it goes. Jeff's neural network doesn't need a programmer to keep writing lines of code. It just hoovers up data and starts figuring things out. It starts getting smarter all on its own. The implications are profound. This technology could help self-driving cars avoid running people over. It could help pharmaceutical companies discover new drugs. It could enable flawless translation, image recognition. It's the kind of artificial intelligence that every tech company on the planet always dreamed might be possible, but could never manage to build. So obviously, they're itching to get their hands on it, or at least get their hands on Jeff. His plan in Lake Tahoe is to auction off his expertise to the highest of four bidders, Google, Microsoft, a British startup called DeepMind, and the Chinese tech company Baidu. The rules are simple. Every hour, each bidder has the opportunity to bid an extra million dollars for his services. And if no one bids the extra million dollars, then the auction is over. The bidding takes place over email, partly to keep the bid secret, but also to protect Jeff from having to do any of this face-to-face. 
He'd been to Tahoe a few times before, and he'd often left with a cold, something to do with the dry climate. But he can't risk getting sick again, not now. So he builds himself a makeshift infirmary. He takes an ironing board, lays it across the gap between the hotel room's two beds, and then drapes a few wet towels over it. At night, he sleeps beneath that damp canopy. During the day, he hovers by the overturned trash can that serves as his standing desk and watches as the bids come in. And come in, they do. The price climbs to $20 million and then $25 million. Jeff expected to pocket a decent chunk of change, but nothing like this. After all, he doesn't really have a product. He just has a nine-page research paper, and he doesn't really have a team either, just two grad students, and they haven't even finished their PhDs. But as the hours go by, the bidding keeps going to 30 million and 35 million, 40 million. There's a knock at the door. It's Baidu's bidder, Caillou, the last person Jeff wants to see. Caillou is willing to spend tens of millions of dollars for access to Jeff's brain. If he comes into the room now and sees the wet towel contraption, he might conclude that Jeff is on his last leg and pull out of the auction. Jeff can't let that happen. He turns to his two students, who are the only two other people in this three-person company that he has built, and he says, that's what vice presidents do. And they put away all this stuff before opening the door and allowing Caillou to come in. And apparently, Caillou likes what he sees because the bids keep rolling in. 41 million, 42 million, 43 million, 44 million. And at that point, this is, you know, the second or third day in this auction, Jeff pauses it again just because he needs some sleep and he goes to bed. At some point that night, while he's lying under that canopy of wet towels, Jeff makes up his mind. He's going to sell to Google. The auction is over, but the AI race has just begun. That race is the subject of a deeply reported and utterly fascinating new book by my guest, Cade Metz. It's called Genius Makers, the Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. It tells the fascinating story of how AI went from obscure theory to technological breakthrough. Thanks to the pioneering work of Jeff Hinton, we now live in a world where machines can think like us. And one day, they may even be able to outthink us. Cade has the full story of how we got here from the people who made this technology possible to the world powers fighting to control it. Whether the era of sentient AI is around the corner, down the block, or never actually coming, Cade says now's the time to start wrestling with the ethical dilemmas that AI poses. Because even if intelligent computers never eclipse humans, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried. AI can still develop biases, distribute disinformation, and deform our society. Having said that, it might also extend our lives and free us up to spend more time doing the things we love. The way we develop this technology in the coming years will make all the difference. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Cade Matz, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. 
I was interested to learn, Cade, that in addition to being a tech correspondent at the New York Times, you're also a playwright. And it strikes me that this book is really kind of a marriage of those two pursuits. I mean, on the one hand, there's clearly a huge amount of good old-fashioned reporting that went into this. I think I read that you spent eight years, was that right, researching it? But on the other hand, it's totally character-driven, and there's a huge amount of beautiful development of these characters. So it isn't just a book about artificial intelligence. It's a drama starring the people responsible for advancing it. Does that resonate for you? I can't tell you how much that resonates. That's exactly what I want to do. And I'm glad that right here at the top, you're bringing that up. What I often tell people is that like a lot of individuals, I'm a combination of my two parents. My father Mm. was an engineer, a career IBMer, a programmer, and my mother very much has a an English major sensibility. And I grew up uh, myself with these two interests. I ended up interning at IBM as a programmer when I was in college, but I majored in English. And uh, yes, I've written several plays. And um, my aim is to, with any story I write, whether it's a book like this or the stories I do at the Times, is to bring out the technology through the people, the people who are building it, the people who are using it, the people who will ultimately be affected by it. Any good story is about people. And as luck would have it, I found some fascinating people uh, to follow with this book. You certainly did. Well, before we go any further, let's answer a really basic question, which is what is a neural network? And I think that's a perfect segue to big idea number one. The rise of AI over the last decade was driven by a single technological idea. It's called a neural network. A neural network is a mathematical system that can learn skills on its own by analyzing vast amounts of data. The example I always give is that if you feed thousands of cat photos into a neural network, it can analyze these photos looking for the patterns that define what a cat looks like. In this way, it learns to identify a cat. It's an idea that dates back to the 1950s when a Cornell University professor named Frank Rosenblatt built a neural network that could learn to recognize printed letters. That's all it could do, but in the pages of my own newspaper, the New York Times, Rosenblatt promised it would do much more. One day, he said, it would not just recognize letters, but identify objects in photos, recognize spoken words, speak for itself, and somehow build itself on an assembly line and even fly into space where it would do who knows what. Most scientists discarded the idea of a neural network, but a tiny few still believed it would one day come good. These are the central characters in my book, a small group of researchers who nurtured this idea for decades, often in the face of enormous skepticism until it finally started to work around 2012. Addressing this fundamental question of how neural networks work, I understand the notion of feeding a neural network thousands and thousands of cat photos until it can correctly identify pictures of cats. I'm still fuzzy on exactly how it does this. I understand there are kind of multiple layers of analysis. Is that right? How does it work? Loosely speaking, a neural network is designed in the image of the human brain. So our, our brains are networks of neurons, and each neuron 
is essentially making a tiny calculation and passing that on to the next neuron. And that's the way this, this mathematical system works, where you have these faux neurons that are each doing a tiny calculation on their own, and that calculation is, is meaningless on its own. But in combination with all these other calculations being done by all these other faux neurons, it's able to recognize these patterns. If you look at a neural network when it's learning to recognize a cat, for instance, um, researchers have done work where they can show where particular neurons are learning particular parts of a cat, right? There are clusters of neurons that actually learn what, a, what, what the nose looks like or what the curve of the ear is. And then this all comes together when it comes to recognizing the cat as a whole. Ultimately, it's just mathematics, but it's mathematics on this enormous scale that can learn these complex images or sounds or, or languages. Fascinating. You know, one of the things that I did not know prior to reading your book was that for many of the early innovators of, of neural networks, this was for them part of a process of trying to understand how the human brain functions, right? And for Jeff Hinton, who's sort of the protagonist, this wonderful protagonist of this book, I, I remember, I think a friend had said to him in childhood that the brain effectively creates holographs that are distributed among all the neurons something to that effect. And that just fascinated him. And he thought, I need to try to figure out how brains work. But as I understand it, Frank Rosenblatt, who was really one of the earliest innovators of neural networks, and later Hinton and others, saw this as this kind of iterative process of trying to, of thinking like, hey, if we try to create models of how the brain functions on computers, we can better understand how brain functions, but we can also use this to solve problems, right? So, so it was, it's both this kind of process of trying to understand ourselves and our own brains and trying to solve human problems. Is that right? It's spot on. And it's one of the many reasons that Hinton is such a good character to build around when it comes to this story. He, he had one foot in psychology and another foot in computer science. And Frank Rosenblatt, it was the same way. You know, officially he was a psychologist, but he's mm, working yeah. with computers as well. And what it shows is that you know, these are two new fields which are still developing. Uh, on the one hand, we don't know how the brain works. On the other hand, we do not have a machine that works like the brain. But as those two fields progress, they can inform each other, right? As we get machines um, that can do more things, the hope is, at least with people like Rosenblatt and Hinton, as we develop those machines, they can give us a better understanding of the brain. And then as we get a better understanding of the brain, that can help build better machines and so on and so forth. Uh, now, 50 years later, that iterative process is still continuing. And there are still arguments over how much each has progressed, um, but we have certainly progressed in both respects. I love the range of interests that a lot of the protagonists in the book have that may, really made it possible, right, for us to discover the opportunity that neural networks present. And it actually, it, it, an author who we love here at the Next Big Idea Club is David Epstein, who I'm sure you know wrote this book, Range. He would highly approve of your combination of writing plays and writing about technology, as well as uh, Rosenblatt's interest in psychology and computer science. 
and Jeffrey Hinton's range of interests, which is basically great hope for dilettantes everywhere like ourselves. <laughs> but this brings us to Jeffrey Hinton, who who is like, I just have to think there was some moment, Cade, when you when you just realized that Jeff was just this sort of gift of a perfect central character. I mean, here's this guy, it's a little more background for our listeners, who was from a prominent English family of scientists. I think he was the great-great-grandson of George Boole, of Boolean logic. I think Boolean logic provided the mathematical foundation for all modern computers. Is that right? Am I getting that right? That's exactly right. Meanwhile, his father is this extraordinary prominent English entomologist who's a fellow of the Royal Society who can do a pull-up with one arm, <laughs> right? And he just lives, you know, in this extraordinary household growing up with three siblings, a mongoose, a dozen Chinese turtles, and two viper snakes. And meanwhile, his father is this character who says, Jeff, if you work really hard, maybe when you're twice as old as I am, you'll be half as good, <laughs> right? So my, my heart also breaks for him because you get the sense that he really endured a, a challenging dynamic with his father and the expectations growing up in this sort of legendary family of, of scientists. And it's also interesting to observe how many people are motivated by a sense of a lack of acceptance by people they looked up to as a child. I mean, I think of like Elon Musk has this fraught relationship with his father. Steve Jobs had a chip on his shoulder about his dad and being adopted. Jeff Bezos was raised by a stepfather. It's great material for a psychologist or perhaps even a playwright. It's really true. And those are some of my favorite moments in the book where Jeff talks about his father in these very forthright terms. And, you know, he talks about him with humor, but also there's this underlying anger, right? He calls him the old bastard is what he says to me. Huh. And he's talking about that paper that Jeff and his two students released in 2012, which became one of the most cited papers in the AI field or in the tech field. And this is 40 years after his father has died, and he's comparing the number of citations that he received for this paper versus the number of citations that his father's you know, most popular paper received. And the other thing to think about is this extends not only to Jeff's relationship with his father, but his relationship to his entire family. He came from this family of scientists. It wasn't just that his father was an entomologist and a fellow with the Royal Society. It was that you know, he had a cousin who invented the jungle gym and another who worked on the Manhattan Project. She was one of the few women to work on the Manhattan Project. You know, He had another relative, um, George Everest, who gave his name to the highest peak on earth. And you can kind of feel the weight that was put upon him to be an academic of high standing. Um, because of this this family history. Meanwhile, you know, his interest was in this strange new field of artificial intelligence. You know, it wasn't exactly the most prestigious field to go into um, when he went into it in the early 70s. And even within that field, which was on the fringes of academia, he embraces this idea that no one believed it. Even AI researchers did not believe in this idea of a neural network. And that is what he took hold of and didn't let go of for the next 50 years. Um, you know, in the end, as Jeff will tell you, he has had the last laugh over his father and has risen to the fore of not just the AI field, but 
technology writ large and this idea has now moved into industry and is now changing the world in so many ways. You know, when you think of this story of neural networks that showed this promise early on in what, the 50s, 60s, and then we went into an AI winter, you needed a personality who was perseverant, deeply curious, and had been underestimated. I mean, he, it's, somehow I feel like he has all the right personality traits to sort of develop this deep fidelity to this idea that he continues for decades. Can you share with us, Kate, what happens with the evolution of neural networks and the, the I guess what people call the AI winter? So the, the AI winter is when, you know, after all this hype has been built up in the area, people realize the technology doesn't match the hype. And so what happens is that the money dries up. People assume this idea is not going to work and they move on to other things. And that happened across the AI field uh, in the 70s. But you're right. Jeff Hinton, despite all that, continues to work on the idea. It doesn't matter to him whether the money is there or not. It doesn't matter to him if the people beside him are working on this or not. He continues to work on it. And eventually, he finds uh, a job as a, a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and ends up having a mathematical breakthrough along with two other researchers that start to realize this idea of a neural network and push it to the next level. When when Rosenblatt was working on this, there was this missing mathematical piece. Jeff and two fellow researchers find that missing piece, and then things start to progress again in the mid-80s. Um, it would take another you know, 20, 25 years um, before we had other pieces uh, that allowed this idea to work, but Jeff is the person that's there all along the way. So the funding dries up, and there's this mathematical problem, but... Then there's also the problem of discovering over time that, in fact, the amount of computing power that's necessary to make these neural networks really functional is orders of magnitude greater than Rosenblatt had thought. And even that Jeff and his colleagues thought in the 80s, they just didn't realize how much data and how much processing power they would need. So... We basically have the same math that Jeff and his colleagues had in the 80s, but now what we have are the vast amounts of data that allow this idea to work and the computing power needed to process all that data. It's the internet that gave us that data, all the photos and all the sounds and all the text that was needed to make this work. And then by 2012, when the idea really hit, we had the computer chips that could analyze all that data and really show that this idea could work, not just when it came to recognizing cats and, and other objects uh, in images, but when it comes to recognizing spoken words and really understanding human language, you know, understanding the text that we post to the internet. We had all that, and that's when things really started to work and then spread across the industry. And it's now manifest in our own individual lives. Like, I think that probably many of our listeners have used Google Translate. And we have these, you know, digital assistants that are, they're not perfect, but they're, they're getting better and better. I use Gmail and Google Docs. I know a lot of us do. And I've noticed that just in the last year, its accuracy in predicting what I'm about to type has gotten greater and greater. This is neural networks, right? 
it's all driven by the same idea. And you're right, a neural network has completely changed the way systems can recognize the spoken word. And we see that on our phones or you know, every day. And what it's really doing now is increasing the ability of machines to understand natural language. So understand the natural way that you and I piece words together. And that's what you're seeing, you know, with those, you know, autocomplete systems, which can predict the next word. The way these neural networks work is it's absolutely fascinating. Essentially, you take giant amounts of text from the internet. So Wikipedia articles, digital books, and you feed it into a giant neural network. And this neural network will spend literally months analyzing all that text and trying to identify the patterns in the way you and I piece words together. And what those systems are doing fundamentally are just trying to predict the next word in any sequence of words. As they keep analyzing, they get better and better and better at that one task, predicting the next word in a sequence. But what's so fascinating is that once it learns that one task, you can take that same system and you can apply it to all sorts of other tasks. You just give it a little bit more data. You show it a few tweets, for instance, and that same system can then learn to generate its own tweets. You show it a few blog posts. It learns to write its own blog posts in a certain style. The list goes on. You show it examples of conversation, and it can learn to converse in the same way. That's what we're seeing now. And again, these systems aren't perfect yet. There's a lot more that still needs to be done. But these systems are getting better and better at doing those types of things, generating language on their own. That's going to continue to progress in the years to come. And when these systems are ingesting the data of, of spoken voice, they're ingesting not only the words, but also the ums and the ahs and the, the rhythms of human voice. And this was demonstrated by Google when they showed the world their AI assistant booking an appointment at a hair salon in 2018. I think we have the clip here. Let's, let's play it. Oh, happening out here. Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. Isn't that extraordinary? So, it, so I mean, these neural networks are not necessarily learning grammatically correct English, they're learning the way that we speak. And when they learn that, they can also speak it themselves. Well, you know, that what you're hearing there um, is a is a combination of technologies working in concert. And, you know, people are laughing because one of those voices is a machine and it's doing things that seem very human. And that moment when Google revealed that was really surprising to a lot of people. 
And it's a powerful task, right? Who thought we could get to the point where a machine could call someone on the phone and do that? But it's also a little bit misleading. That's a narrow task, mm, yep. right? calling someone and making an appointment. It's not the kind of open-ended conversation that you and I are having. The technology is improving to that point. But I think the mistake with a lot of these technologies is that people see something working in a narrow area and they extrapolate and they think, well, it's going to work in all these other areas. The way I often describe this phenomenon, and this is a very real phenomenon when it comes to artificial intelligence, is that so often you see a little bit of human behavior in, in a pet, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? A, a dog will look you in the eye. And when you when the dog looks you in, in the eye, you attribute all these other human qualities to the dog unconsciously. Like you see one human quality mm -hmm. and you assume subconsciously it has all these other human qualities. And the same thing happens in that moment with that demo. You see it working so well with making a hair appointment. And then you think, ah, the, the Turing test, as they call it, has been solved. We can now have machines that can carry on a conversation. But the reality is, is that we're still a long way from machines having a conversation like you and I are having now. It's a, it's a real balance. And I want to show that in the book, mm -hmm. that as we have all this enormous progress, there's still holes in the technology, and it's easy to be misled by the technology. And that's part of the problem with it. Well, I'm, I'm glad, Cade, that our jobs as book authors and podcast hosts are secure for a few more years. <laughs> they certainly that's are. That's reassuring. Most likely quite a few decades, right, based on uh, what I've read in your book. But what can we expect in terms of what's imminent? The big task there is a system that can carry on a conversation. And we're already starting to see the seeds of that. GPT-3, this massive neural network that can learn the vagaries of, say, the English language. Um, can carry on a decent turn-by-turn -turn conversation. It, it's not perfect, but you you can see that starting to happen. That's a big goal in the area, and we're going to see progress there. But we're already starting to see this help in so many other ways. This same technology is helping to improve the Google search engine, for instance. You know, Google is a, essentially a Q&A system. I ask a question, and it seeks to give me an answer. People may or may not have noticed this, but that type of neural network is helping Google better understand what you're looking for and give you better answers. And we're seeing that as well. There are so many ways that a computer tries to understand natural language and then respond to it. That technology is helping so many services um, behave in better and more human, so to speak, ways. But if neural networks are voracious learners, that means they can learn things we'd rather they didn't. Coming up after the break, Cade tells us why AI has the potential to be an even bigger sexist, racist, conspiracy theorist than your least favorite uncle. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. So Cade's first big idea is that the rise of AI over the last decade was driven by one invention, the neural network. It's this miraculous technology that learns from whatever data you feed it. But that also means that if you feed it an unhealthy diet, well, let's hear what Cade has to say about that. Because GPT-3 learns from information we humans post to the internet, it learns from our flaws. It can be biased against women or people of color. It can spew hate speech. These aren't easy problems to solve. After learning that unwanted behavior, the system can't unlearn it. Scientists can start from scratch with a new data set, but the amount of data the system learns from is so large, they can't possibly weed out all the bias or all the hate speech. This issue has led to enormous tension in the tech industry. With the likes of Google and Microsoft, this technology is the future. But increasingly, researchers are exposing the bias in these systems. Google recently ousted two researchers, Timney Gebru and Meg Mitchell, both characters in my book, after clashing with them over how this issue should be handled and it's unclear how this tension will ultimately be resolved. We are heading toward a world where machines can create and distribute disinformation at a scale that makes today's fake news problem look tiny. If a neural network can learn to recognize the image of a cat, it can also generate the image of a cat. It can also generate images of people, including videos. It can generate a voice that sounds just like yours. It can generate tweets and blog posts and even carry on a conversation, as I said. Today, the technology can't quite do all this as well as we humans, but it's rapidly improving. Once the technology is perfected and machines can distribute disinformation at volumes humans never could, we may have to change the way we view anything we see online. So you mentioned Timnit Gibru. Let's dig into her story a little bit since it encapsulates a lot of the issues of bias, not just in AI itself, but within the organizations that control it. To start with, can you tell us who Timneet is and how she fits into the story? Timneet is an AI researcher. Uh, her family uh, comes from Ethiopia. And there's this great moment in the book. She's at Stanford. She attends this annual AI conference, and it's in Barcelona. So this is an international conference. And she looks across all the faces and she realizes there are almost no African-Americans, um, no black people you know, in this sea of faces. There are very, very few women. And the problem of, of bias starts to hit home for her. It's fascinating how these systems literally learn from the data. And then you have human researchers choosing that data and either consciously or unconsciously, they're going to choose data that suits their worldview. And if most of those researchers are white men, you know, they're going to choose particular types of data. And that means the systems that train on that data are going to exhibit their own, you know, the biases of these researchers. And that's the problem that she and, a, and a, just a tiny group of others start to realize. She eventually, along with some others, wind up at Google trying to deal with this problem. And then 
you know, as sort of their efforts to do this start to clash with efforts to get this technology out into the world, um, she ends up being ousted from the company along with, you know, another key researcher, as you mentioned, Meg Mitchell. There is a real tension there. Um, it's hard to, to deal with this bias problem. And um, the companies are still struggling, um, you know, with that, you know, even as they're trying to get this out, out there, they know how important this technology is to the bottom line and to their future. And that's why they're pushing it out, even um, though they, they don't quite know how to solve this bias problem. Yeah, because part of the challenge, I imagine, is that neural networks need these massive data sets. And really, I guess, the data sets would need to be curated to remove or at least limit the appearance of human biases. Yeah, think of it like this. I mean, a neural network, as we said before, it works because you can just throw massive amounts of data at it, right? That's why that neural network is powerful because it can quickly learn a task that would ordinarily take decades and decades for engineers to build, right? So then, you know, if you're going to curate all that data, you're sort of defeating the purpose of the technology, right? You would, you would spend decades trying to weed out all the bias from all this data. It's just not feasible. So there's this kind of this catch-22 with it. So then we have the problem that you pointed out earlier, which is the same intelligence that's necessary to recognize human language and images and photos and videos makes it possible to generate those things. And this leads us to deep fakes. What's happening there? The best way to think about this is that, you know, a neural network, as we've shown, can learn to recognize a cat. Well, if it can recognize a cat, then you can essentially turn it upside down and then it can generate the image of a cat. And that's what we're seeing as well is increasingly neural networks can generate photorealistic images, not just of cats, but of people's faces. Essentially, it can create fake people. Wow. Um, it can create fake tweets, blog posts, as I said. The piece I recently wrote about that technology, GPT-3 for the Times, mm. I was putting the piece together and my editor said, we need a really good example that shows this technology in action, creating, you know, human language, um, you know, something that that is not the real thing, but looks like the real thing. And we eventually decided we were going to ask the system to produce a speech in the voice of Donald Trump. And let me tell you, the speech that ended up being generated and at one point was in my story was jaw dropping. That's the kind of problem we're discussing here, right? When you have systems that can generate sounds, um, can generate images, can generate language as well as humans, then you have a real disinformation problem, right? We, we're already dealing with this problem as a society. Anyone who's lived over the past four years knows that. But that disinformation is largely generated by humans. What happens when the machines can generate that disinformation just as well as humans and then distribute it at a much, much larger scale than humans ever could? Then we're, we're in trouble. Now, we're not quite there yet. You know, I do want to say that although that system could generate a speech in the voice of Donald Trump, remarkably well, it couldn't do it every time, right? So if you ask it 10 times for the speech, 
Five of them are going to be good. The other five are not going to be good. So there's still a gap there, but the technology is improving. Well, if the improving technology results in an infinite supply of freakishly uh, convincing Donald Trump speeches, that does strike me as dystopian. <laughs> Indeed. Even though we, Indeed. we make efforts to be a, a nonpartisan podcast that welcomes all political persuasions, I think a lot of us maybe have had enough of the real Donald Trump speeches. Um, if we imagine that these deep fakes will start to propagate in greater quantity, it strikes me that there are two potential concerns here. I mean, the first is just that obviously photographs and videos we have used for many, many decades as a representation of the truth. And so the idea that those can be completely fraudulent is highly concerning. And then beyond that, the idea that these could be generated in, a, in an almost infinite supply and could crowd out authentic photos, videos, and, and writing. Is that what people worry about? What do you think is the, the fear here? That's exactly right. There's another great character in the book named Ian Goodfellow. And he created this key technology here that's driving a lot of this. It's called a GAN. The way he sees this is that we're really going to have to change the way we view what we see online. That as a society, we're going to have to realize that what we're seeing may not be real, right? Typically, when we see a photograph or we see a video today, we assume that it's proof that something happened. Um, when we see a blog post, we assume that a human wrote it. But as time goes on, we may have to just change the way we look at bits on a screen. We, we may have to shift our point of view. That may be a hard thing for society to do, um, but as this technology progresses, we may have to do that. You know, as we go through some of the near-term concerns here, another thing that's alarming to me about the rise of AI is that it seems to be reinforcing the dominance of a small number of tech companies. And there's a logic to that, right, isn't there, that, that you need massive processing power and you need massive data sets to make these neural networks successful. And this basically makes the most powerful companies in the world ever more powerful. Do you, do you think that's uh, something that's happening? That's spot on. We, we've talked a lot about this system, GPT-3, this massive neural network that can learn the vagaries of, say, the English language. That type of technology at the moment is something that can really only be built by these large companies. These are the companies that have the data needed to train that, and they have the computer processing power, the, the giant data centers filled with machines that can analyze over months all that English language text and eventually you know, come up with this system that, that can be so effective in so many ways, in so many areas, you know, from conversation to question and answer on down the line. Um, there's a lot of, of concern in the AI field that at least in certain areas, these giant companies, these giant public companies who are driven by the profit motive are really going to drive a lot of this technology and leave even governments and, and academic labs um, you know, on the sidelines, at least in certain areas. And we're really talking about Google, Amazon, Facebook, Baidu. Apple, I guess, right, is, is probably late to the game, but has gotten into the game as well as Microsoft. Yeah, and I'm glad you're bringing up Baidu and we could add the other you know, big Chinese companies there. Um, this is an international thing, but 
you know, really it is about, about available data and processing power. And, and this is where things get interesting when it comes to the Chinese piece. It, you know, a lot of people think, including some of the voices um, in the book, that in the long term, China could have an advantage because it has a greater population. Right? That means it's going to generate more data. It also has a different attitude when it comes to digital privacy, right? There's a tension in the West, um, certainly, when it comes to gathering all the data you need to train these systems, right? There, you know, in gathering all that data, you can compromise personal privacy. In China, the attitudes towards that are a little different, and there may be ways that uh, the data can can more easily be gathered um, in that part of the world. We'll see. Uh, again, this is something that is still playing out. But there's a real tension there between personal privacy and the progress of these technologies. One of the things that's striking reading the book is what an international effort it is. I mean, you have researchers coming together from all sorts of different nations and backgrounds collaborating. And of course, this has historically been a, a, a great uh, strength of the United States is its ability to, to attract talent from all over. But in, in recent years, under the Trump administration, there were, was a, you know, limitations on immigration that I think adversely impacted our ability to recruit talent. Is that, you think that's part of the story? It's absolutely part of the story. And it's another reason that Jeff Hinton is so important to this tale, right? He, he ended up in the eighties leaving the U.S. Um, Basically, because you know he and his wife didn't want to take funding from Ronald Reagan's Defense Department, right? He they realized that was the only way to do AI research was to take money from the DoD, and so they left and they went to Canada. And what that meant was that the center of gravity for that idea of a neural network was in Canada around Jeff and these these large you know American companies we've been talking about. They had to go out outside the country to realize this idea and bring, you know, essentially outsiders in, into the fold. It's again, you know, an example of the way the U.S. relies on immigrant talent, right? And that will continue to be the case. And that's part of the complexity I was talking about, right? On the one hand, you know, people talk about us being in this, this arms race with China for AI. On the other hand, the U.S. really needs Chinese talent in this area. You know, there's this example of a uh, DOD project that Google ended up working on, you know, when it came to actually applying neural networks, you know, inside the Department of Defense. And it was using Chinese nationals um, on this project. It shows you that although there are concerns when it comes to rival countries, you need to balance that with the U.S.'s need for immigrant talent. Well, and you reference this history of distrust between some of these researchers and the military. Of course, I think it was at the Navy that funded some of Rosenblatt's early research on neural networks. And of course, there's a long history of the relationship between the military and technological development. I think, you know, of course, uh, the military played a substantial role in the development of the internet. But the culture has evolved, and you describe in the book some of the drama around the Google's Maven project and how people at Google responded to that. Can you speak to that? You know, it's, an, it's another area where Jeff Hinton was central. 
you know, a lot of the people like Hinton who developed this idea over the decades were idealists, right? Jeff had a, a really clear vision of how he wanted this technology to be used to the point that he and his wife, like I said, left the United States because they did not want the technology being used for military purposes. Well, fast forward 20 years, Jeff then moves into Google, who promptly goes to work with the DOD using this very technology. And, you know, a lot of people at Google, not just Jeff, were concerned about this. And you saw this, you know, play out um, in real time to the point where, you know, Google ended up actually leaving that project because so many people at the company were concerned Google was helping the military in a way that was essentially a, a path towards autonomous weapons. They were taking the neural network idea and they were using that to identify objects in drone footage, right? So that's a way of doing lots of things. It's a way of potentially identifying targets. It's a way of doing surveillance. But if you look you know, down the line, it's a path towards autonomous weapons, right? If you can identify a target you know, in video, you can put a gun on your system and you've got an autonomous weapon, right? And that's what concerns a lot of people uh, like Jeff Hinton. Now, there, there are other people who, who are on the other side of this. I want to make that clear too, who think that Google absolutely should be working with the military, that we're going to have other countries, including China, who are going to have a real push towards applying those, those types of ideas to military uses and that um, the big American companies, you know, need to be doing the same thing. Um, so again, you know, it's an example of, of a real tension in this field. And that's what happens in the second half of my book, is you have the ideals of some of these researchers kind of clashing with these giant public companies who are driven by the profit motive. And in that clash between idealistic researchers and profit-driven companies, we see the perils posed by AI are just as great as the promises. If this technology can outthink us one day, what's to stop it from deciding we humans are redundant? Coming up after the break, Cade says there's plenty to fear about AI, even if the dystopian vision of super-intelligent computers is a long way off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So Cade's first big idea is that the modern rise of AI stems from the discovery of the neural network. His second big idea is that as marvelous as the neural network is, it can also develop biases and spread disinformation. Now in his third and final big idea, Cade wades into the biggest ethical dilemma of them all when it comes to AI. What'll we do if one day computers are smarter than we are? When someone says we will soon have machines that can do anything the human brain can do, don't take it at face value. Two of the world's leading AI labs say their stated mission is to build what they call AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, a 
machine that can do anything the brain can do. One of these labs is DeepMind, a lab founded in London that is now owned by the same parent company as Google. The other is OpenAI, which was founded by Elon Musk and others in response to DeepMind. These labs were built by some remarkable people who play large roles in the book. People like Demis Asabas, a neuroscientist who has been called perhaps the greatest games player of all time, and Mr. Musk, an entrepreneur who seems to have a knack for making science fiction a reality. But although such voices say AGI is on the way, they don't necessarily know how to get there. There are some researchers who are driven by the belief that AGI can be built and built relatively soon. There are others who believe the idea is ridiculous. It was about five years ago when Elon Musk got really vocal about the potential existential threat that AI posed to humanity. And since then, I think in the public conversation, the collective view has backed off from that sort of imminent existential threat you know, perception. But I think it's kind of interesting to look at that moment five years ago. We have a clip here of Elon talking with Walter Isaacson at a Vanity Fair conference back in 2014. We actually just had a great conversation with Walter about his book, Codebreaker, which has some parallels to yours, actually, Kate, a, a wonderful work of narrative nonfiction about the people behind tech breakthroughs. Let's listen to this clip of, of Walter and Elon in 2014. Your other big thing that you worry about is sort of machines getting out of control. Explain that. I, I don't think most people understand just how quickly machine intelligence is advancing. It's much faster than almost anyone realizes, even within Silicon Valley, and certainly outside Silicon Valley, people really have no idea. Um, so Why is that dangerous? If, if, there's, if there's a superintelligent, particularly if it's engaged in recursive self-improvement, if there's some digital superintelligence um, and its optimization or utility function um, is something that's detrimental to humanity, then it will have a very bad effect. Um, you know, it could be just something like getting rid of spam email or something. And it's like, concludes, well, the best way to get rid of spam is to get rid of humans. So Musk talks about recursive self-improvement, which I think Hinton was skeptical about until more recently. What is recursive self-improvement? And, and is, is there, are there reasons to be concerned about it, do you think? Well, he's taking such, such a leap there, right? He's talking about AI improving at an alarming rate that people don't realize it. Well, what was improving were the things that we were, we've been talking about, right? Yeah. Speech recognition, image recognition, natural language understanding. That's very different from this, you know, system that, you know, is recursively self-improving. So learning, you know, from the world around it, and then as it learns more, it can learn to improve itself. The systems do not work like that today, like period. You know, a, a neural network, it's not learning in real time from everything around it, right? A good way to think about this is a self-driving car. The way a self-driving car recognizes the world around it, recognizes stop signs, other cars, pedestrians on the side of the road, that's with a neural network. 
but it's not as if the neural network is learning as the car drives around from everything that's going on. The way it works is, is you, you have to drive the car around and you have to gather all the data, all the photos and videos, right? And then you take it back to your data center and you feed it into your neural network and, the, and you train it to do something. Then you put the new, a new neural network on the car and it does better, right? So it's not, it's not improving itself. You've got this very much have a human in the loop and there's a, you know, there's a multi-step process. It's not as if the car is somehow on a path to getting sentient, right? It's still an engineering task. It's not you know, this sort of omnipotent system that is able to learn in real time and self-improve. And yet in that moment, in that interview with Isaacson, Musk is making that leap, right? It's just in a matter of seconds, he makes that leap. And it's very easy to just take what he's saying at face value um, and think, wow, we're on the path towards these machines that could kill us all. But that's very different. And I don't want to discredit a lot of the real practical work that Elon Musk companies have done over the years. Um, you know, there have been so many improvements when it comes to, you know, autonomous vehicle technology at Tesla, among other things. But that sort of verbal leap he takes, you know, I do want to explain to people that that's not necessarily what you might think. Yeah. And actually, you know, now that you mention it, it strikes me that maybe the, um, the difficulty of the self-driving car problem, maybe part of what has applied brakes to extend the car metaphor to our perception of the speed at which AI is making progress. Because I think around 2014, when Musk was saying those words, he was making predictions about when Tesla would have fully autonomous vehicles that have not proven to be true. And so I think it's a, it's a real world example of like, it's a hard problem getting a car to drive. It is astronomically hard. And getting a, a car to drive the streets is much easier than building a machine that can do anything the human brain can do. So that's one way of understanding how far off that AGI idea is. But you're right. A self-driving car is a really good way to think about the moment that we're in right now. For so many years, people, not just Musk, although he was one of the big driving forces, have claimed that self-driving cars would be out on the streets by now and, and reinventing the, the economy. And we all know that is not the case. That problem is so much harder than a lot of those voices let on. Um, we're going to have that technology improve in small ways over the next several years. Maybe over decades, we'll see that type of technology replace the cars we have today. But it is going to take years and years and years and potentially decades before that transition really happens. You know, and the irony, of course, is that while Musk was banging pots and pans about the existential threat of AI, he was also putting together open AI, which is intent on building artificial general intelligence. And then subsequently was hiring people away from OpenAI to help Tesla make driverless cars. So it, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the characters in your book are both deeply concerned about the implications of artificial general intelligence, right? Which is this kind of, you know, creating a, a system that could have the intelligence of a human or a super intelligence vastly exceeding that of a human. But at the same time, <laughs> we, have, we have all these great personalities who are advancing the drive to generate AGI while at the same time banging pots and pans and saying, we should be really nervous about this. Right. It's, it's an interesting irony. And 
know, and there there's a kernel of something real there and something very important there, right? As I said, we've seen the way that much simpler technologies can go wrong, whether it's the bias issue or the disinformation issue or, or so many other examples. We've seen the way these things can go wrong, and we need as a society to be concerned about it. So even though that AGI concept is you know potentially decades away, even if it, it, if it arrives at all, you know it makes sense on some level to to show concern because we need to show concern for all these technologies. But what's so fascinating to me is that there is a real belief in that AGI idea within the AI community. And so many of these researchers, you know, including many characters in my book, really have a firm belief that this will be built. Um, but I do want to underline the fact that it is a belief, right? The, the chapter in my book that talks about this is called religion. Mm, yep. um, and it is, you know, this, you know, this sort of secular religion that has sprung up. Um, you know, you have this growing group of people who believes in this notion of a machine that can do anything the human brain can do, right? It's not as if... Um, Elon Musk is is necessarily, you know, pretending to believe this. It appears that he very much believes it. Um, and you get so many other people like this. I mean, this is this is their reality, even though there are so many other people who think that they're stretching things. You know, we were talking earlier about how early neural network researchers didn't realize how much more computing power would end up being necessary to realize this this potential. Uh, I think it was Jeff Dean, the, the legendary Google programmer, who in the early 1990s experimented with using 64 processors for his neural network to pull together the power he thought would be necessary. And then he says later, I was a bit naive. It turned out he would need a million times more computing power. So that was the growth of what was possible over a 30-year period, a million times more processing power. Isn't it possible that the dream of artificial general intelligence will prove to be similar. I mean, it may require not 10 times our current processing power, but 100,000 times or a million times, um, which could conceivably be possible through you know, quantum computing or some other technology that's, that will be in the works in decades to come. If that's true, we may be living through an AGI winter of several decades or many decades, but there could come a time when the dream or nightmare, depending on your perspective, becomes possible. That's true, but it's not just about raw computing power. What you're also assuming there is that we have all the data that this you know giant neural network would would need in order to learn the world. So you need you also need enough data to describe everything in the world and then look, you know, have, you know, all the computing power you need to find all the patterns in that and then come up with, with the human brain. It's also unclear whether that that's possible, whether that would even work. You know, we're talking about neural networks that work in very narrow areas, um, speech recognition, image recognition. That's very different from a system that learns everything by analyzing data. That sort of thing is is so different and potentially so far off, it's unclear how we're going to get there. Certainly, there are efforts today to improve our computer processing power. We're, we're kind of running out of steam when it comes to 
you know, the silicon chips that we've relied on for decades. We're seeing new types of chips applied to AI in particular, neural networks in particular, and that's one of the gains that we're seeing. We are working, as you say, on quantum computers, which could take this to a whole new level. And, and we may see computing power significantly improve in the decades to come. But that's sort of different from taking that and applying that to this AGI idea. There's so many moving pieces here. There are so many missing pieces. And that's what I'm trying to explain, is that you have to have this sort of faith that all that's going to come into place you know, relatively soon. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it strikes me from all that I've read, including now your book, that it now feels like the concern that we're going to reach the singularity moment in the next five years or 10 years is just not realistic. But when you look at like the 50-year time horizon from Rosenblatt building these really simple neural networks that could sort of barely recognize a large letter, <laughs> you know, to the kind of things that neural networks are doing today, and just the orders of magnitude of increased computing power and sizes of available data sets that have become available in that 50-year time horizon, that it feels to me like given another 50 years, that we can't we can't begin to conceive of all the advancements that would happen in that time frame. And that in that context, I mean, 50 years on the one hand is a long time. On the other hand, if you're talking about what superintelligence could mean for our species, it's not necessarily that long. Well, again, it always comes back to Jeff Hinton when we when I think about these things and talk about these things and write about these things. The last few sentences of the book are asked if we should worry about the threat of superintelligence. Hinton said this didn't make much sense in the near term, but he also said it was a perfectly reasonable worry if you looked into the distant future. Once again, I think that Jeff does a great job of summing up all these sort of complicated technologies and feelings and um, progress versus setbacks. We don't necessarily know how to get there, but these are things that are possible in the distant future. And there are things that we need to worry about as we approach that future. Well, once again, speaking to the playwright side of you, Kate, you know, as the saying goes, all comedies end in marriage and all tragedies end in death. <laughs> and so I guess we'll find out about the drama of the rise of artificial intelligence. Is it a tragedy or a comedy? We shall see. Um, it's right At the moment, it's both. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's part of the fun of writing the book, I'll tell you. Well, Kate, thank you uh, for taking time out of your journalism and playwriting and raising of daughters to be with us here today. It was such a fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Want to hear two more ideas from Genius Makers? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out Cade's Book Bite, which includes not three big ideas, but five. And why stop there? In our app, you'll also find 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Next week, Daniel Pink is taking over for me He'll be chatting with Shankar Vedantam, host of NPR's Hidden Brain, about why lying to yourself may not be such a bad thing. If you love what we're doing, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to share any thoughts on this and other episodes on Twitter. I'm at Ruth Grisk. That's at R-U-F-G-R-I-S-C. 
Special thanks to Cade Metz. His book, Genius Makers, is available wherever books are sold, including the Next Big Idea app. One day, this show will be made by robots. But until then, I'd like to thank my human team. Caleb Bissinger wrote and produced this episode. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Jason Freeman. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. <laughs>